0: Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors, Metagenics, Integrative Therapeutics, and Biotics Research. The mission of Metagenics is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit Metagenics at metagenics.com. Biotics Research. For over 40 years, the foundations of Biotics Research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at BioticsResearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine and Of course, today is no exception. I'm thrilled to be talking with Dr. Jonathan Prowski. Uh, He is a naturopathic physician like myself. Um, He's chief medical officer and professor times 20 years at the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine. And he focuses in um, all things mental health. and. I've been aware I've actually been using his work in my clinical practice for the entirety of my career actually back when I was doing my postdoctorate training I first became aware of Dr. Prosky's work um, so I want to give you his background who he is and then we're going to jump right into it and just I won't forget this but I'll start right now and say if you head over to our show notes you will see an extensive bibliography from Dr. Prosky, and many of those pieces are available to you and I just want to tell you that it's so useful for the the clinician in practice. So with that, let me just tell you that he graduated from Bastyr University um, in 1998 with his doctorate in naturopathic medicine. Um, he did a residency and family practice at National College of Naturopathic Medicine, my alma mater um, in 2008. He got a, a master's of science degree in international primary healthcare from the University of London, focusing on clinical epidemiology and evidence-based research. In 2016, boy, you just, you just keep going to school. He obtained a master's of arts degree in counseling psychology from Yorkville University. And as I said, at Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine, he is um, uh, a professor as well as chief naturopathic medical officer. He's been in the clinic treating people for for years with this focus on mental health. Um, He received the Orthomolecular Doctor of the Year Award in 2010. He's been recognized and and he was inducted into the Orthomolecular Hall of Fame, just again recognizing his commitment to uh, mental health and, and natural interventions for mental health. He's the author of several texts. Peer-reviewed papers, articles, um, and and one of them is my favorite, and I just pulled it off the shelf, um, called "Anxiety: Orthomolecular Diagnosis and Treatment." This was published in 2006, and it's and it's a slender volume, um, but it's very clinically relevant. And I and I'm going to ask Jonathan in a second. I'm sure that he, much of it is still useful today, um, uh, but the. You know, the dosing instructions, what he's done in practice, just the utility of it for the for the for the busy clinician um, is just, you know, continues to this day for me. And it's just one of those dog-eared volumes that I've got papers tucked inside and yellow sticky notes. Anyway, welcome to New Frontiers, uh, Dr. Presky.
1: Well, thank you so much. And I'm so happy to be here. I always love talking about mental health and I look forward to seeing where this conversation goes.
0: Well, give me, I get, well, you know what, just so I don't forget, first, your 2006 volume, this dog-eared copy that I've been using for years, I just want to button this question up. It, I mean, it ha- has your thinking from this volume changed considerably, or would you say that this is still a useful book for, for folks to be um, referencing?
1: So when I wrote that book, I, think I was a lot more biochemically inclined, though, of course, I still am to some degree. But since I published that book in 2006, I've learned so much more. I mean, we're so much more than our biology, in a sense, even though we're biologically embodied beings. So I would add so much more if I could just do another edition of that book, it would certainly include many more studies, updated information. But then I would like to juxtapose that book with psychological information, How do you work with someone who's anxious, how do you work with someone who's depressed, how do you work with someone who's suicidal, and so on. So I think I have to do another edition at some point, because it is now outdated. But yes, I do think it's still useful to someone who's in practice.
0: Okay good, yes and I I encourage you to do an updated version and we're going to touch on some of the additional pieces but for me the big aha using your book was how to dose nicotinamide so that it's actually effective or lithium or how to dose GABA and and I see in your current work though you continue to give um, guidelines and they tend to be different and higher then certainly if you read the label or you know some of the studies out there where where dosing is very conservative. So that was a piece that I found useful. It was you were recommending therapeutic um, quantities.
1: Yeah I mean we can talk a little bit about that because I think it is interesting. When anybody reads a study, at least when I read a study, I try to think how do I properly translate that to the patient in front of me. And as you know When we work with people in a clinical setting, they don't have the luxury of going through some kind of inclusion and exclusion criteria. So we can't pick an ideal patient who is going to be working with us. As a result, we have to really think, how do I then approach this patient and use the best available information that I have to effectively treat them? And that's how I think about a lot of the things that I do with my patients and in my teachings with my interns. So we spend a lot of time translating information in an effective manner to the patient in front of us. And you're right about dosing, because if you look at some good quality studies, some of them do dose patients and you see good clinical outcomes. But then if you look at other studies with the same particular ingredient, let's say, or natural health product or micronutrient, they're underdosing and they're getting a bad outcome. So... We can learn a lot by these kinds of studies often if they're using inferior dosing they're not going to get the kind of outcomes that could be expected from what i would say is a clinical intervention that could be quite useful so i think there's a lot of nuance that we have to understand as practicing clinicians and i don't think patients quite get how nuanced we have to be when we're working with them it does become rather complicated but once you apply things i think appropriately you can really see good outcomes when people are dosed appropriately and safely.
0: Yes. Yeah, and you do, um, you know, again, just recommending folks to head over to the show notes, you do talk about case, your case experience. It's just very deeply woven through your work and so people can see your approach to care. How did you choose to work with patients having mental health struggles?
1: Yeah, so I will give a bit of self-disclosure When I was quite young, I think I was born with a fairly reactive phenotype, so I could easily become quite shy and socially anxious, and that continued, I would say, in a rather florid form up until my late 20s. So I've been battling, in a sense, with just feeling quite socially anxious for many years, and It takes one to know one, in a sense, because I've had my own, you know, life hardships, as we all do. I've been wounded at times by my own experiences in my own existence, so to speak. I think you sort of build a certain level of empathy, hopefully towards yourself and towards other people. And the more I immerse myself on my own work so I could feel more comfortable in my own skin, the more I just gravitated to people that were suffering from just life in general. And I really feel it's my calling. I love this kind of work. I think everybody has a struggle in life. I don't think life's meant to be easy. It's tough. And I do feel that naturopathic medicine has a real role to help people because we offer all sorts of opportunities for people to regulate their emotional selves in a way that's similar and different than psychiatry and other types of care. So it's just something that I love to do because it takes one in a sense to know one and I get how hard life is I get how complicated it is I get how many moving parts there are and I can see just how there's so many opportunities for other strategies that people aren't just aware of so when I can open up these doors for patients with my interns or in my own clinical practice and help people to see opportunities they never saw before we can really enhance their clinical outcomes and the quality of their life and improve their functionality so in a sense, I'm a fellow traveler with my patients. I've been there to a large degree. And so I feel a connection to them. And then so I feel there's opportunities.
0: Well, thank you for that. I um, I hear it. I, I just and I appreciate it. And I, I think that actually comes through in your writing. You know, you write in plain language, but useful and you know, erudite uh, language. So, you know, I guess that. Kind of leads me to my next question. We talked a little bit about free-forming this chat. I, So how, what's the ideal, how do we approach our, our patients with, um, you know, with mental health? Like, how do we do it? What's the best entry into the connection, the exchange, the encounter?
1: I don't know if I know the best way, but I certainly think I've been able to accrue certain skills that can be helpful but I don't always hit a home run. And sometimes certainly visits don't go the way I want. And then I'll try harder the next time. And I tell my patients that I say, listen, if you have any feedback, so I can do better next time, let me know. And I really do want to hear it. But when I approach anybody, and my hope is for those listening, the best thing to do is to be curious and empathetic and warm and kind and non-judgmental as best as you can. And those are not easy to do because sometimes people push our buttons. Sometimes we have our own responses to their ways of being and it is tough especially for going through your own stress in your own life that can certainly bleed into your own practicing practice as a clinician but I do think that if you can just be warm inviting and curious with anybody and show them a level of care and a level of commitment they're more likely to share with you and to open up themselves they're more likely to reveal to you what is necessary during the encounter but I think that's like anything in life Like we've all met people who don't come across like they care too much and they're sort of cold and they're aloof and maybe not easy to connect with. And though maybe they would be over time, it's just a different type of energy that you feel. So when you're with patients, because they're already under some kind of distress, they're already feeling out of sorts. It is upon us as doctors to make sure that we are available to them and we are ready to receive whatever it is they want to share with us and that we're going to do so in a manner that's going to, enhance the encounter not going to take away from the encounter so i guess that's a bit of what i think we all should do but i don't have a method or i don't have a special set of skills i just think you have to figure this out in a sense that's why we call it an art of practice not perfection Mm -hmm. it's a practice and it takes time to develop that own your your own comfort so you can be available to the patients that you're working with particularly those with mental health struggles
0: right there's a there's a a a acronym in functional medicine called go to it and it's you know just sort of just walks you through uh you know taking a case etc and the and the g and go is 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 gathering yourself and that's not just gathering the history or reviewing you know the the uh medical questionnaire etc etc prior to the encounter but actually gather literally you know gathering yourself um sort of emotionally or spiritually or or just becoming present for the encounter, prior to the encounter. And I, I have found that alone, that piece from that acronym to be the most helpful for me to just remember, even if it's a moment, to take a breath and center and, and, and prepare to tune into the human being who's uh, you know, requested me to join, join with them in their, in their journey. So I, I appreciate what you're saying.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I do think we have to almost intentionally get a certain level of readiness before we begin our days with our patients. If we don't do that, I think it's going to come, it's, you know, find its way into the encounter and maybe it won't be helpful. Like it, you, it really behooves us to sort ourselves out in a sense when we're with our patients so that we can give them the attention they deserve because it is an intimate situation. They are revealing things to us that are very sacred Mm -hmm. And in a sense, we have to be available to that information. And if we're sort of too busy in our own minds because of our own stuff and we're not really present, that does get in the way. And that's why I had to work on my own anxiety. You see, when I was with patients and struggling with my own anxiety, it would get in the way. It would impact the encounter. I would feel out of sorts. And I couldn't give them the type of attention and presence that I was hoping for. So... In a sense, my whole work is sort of selfish because I've been always trying to sort myself out as I've been trying to be available to the patients I serve. So it isn't just about helping people. In a sense, I've been working on myself for decades now.
0: You, do you take a moment? Do you do a little bit of a, of a meditation? I mean, what is your gathering process, if you will?
1: So people ask me that all the time. My students say, how do you leave this shift? Because we have a mental health shift at the school and my whole practice is all mental health. How do you function? How do you sort of separate yourself? And I say to them that my patients are living their complicated lives as, and so am I. And so when I leave the day, I have to first know that I've done a committed job and the right job for my patients. That eases my own mind. And then I go home to my own complicated life and invest myself with the people that I love and who love me. And I keep that separation. So then what keeps me grounded then with my own practice now is just that. I have a life that sustains me. I have people that care about me. I care about them. I do a lot of my own self-care. And all of that to me keeps me above water in a sense. But by no means is it perfect. I struggle too, but I work at it and I don't give up. And that enables me to be available to my patients, but I don't do any particular meditation before I see a patient. I don't do anything that's Mm -hmm. sort of programmed. I just make sure that I'm committed to my own state of being in a sense. And as that commitment is there and it's persistent and it's steadfast, then I find that I'm much more available to the people that I serve. But if I do waver and I don't sleep well, I start ruminating, I start worrying, I start getting into my own head in a sense, but not in a good way, Then certainly it can bleed into my own work and undermine the work that I do. So I'm very disciplined in how I approach my life in a sense. And it's really precisely because of that discipline that I feel I'm much more available now than I ever have been with the people that I work with. But, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it would be an up and down battle because in my own head, there was a war that was raging. So until I sorted that out, I couldn't be as available. And I think we all have to do that. We will all have our own wars. We will all have our own battles and it's it's important. Doctors have to work on themselves as they help their patients. You can't have a boat, you have to have it that way. You can't sort of do one and not the other.
0: Yeah, right. I um I just want to continue on this line. I'm going to ask you one more question.
1: <laughs> yeah, keep going. Um, well,
0: I, well, like, you know, I'm 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 also very diet.
1: transparent. Like I don't really have any <laughs> secrets. I feel what's what's most personal is most general. So I have no issue sharing. Yeah. You know, a lot of my own stuff in a sense.
0: I I just love all your biochemistry stuff, and I kind of want to, but I also want to get into dosing and various, sure. you know, all those all those things. But 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 this is just. This is just such an important conversation, and I want to say, especially now in the backdrop of this pandemic, um, physicians caring for themselves, and of course, you know, the increase uh, in 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 folks that we're seeing struggling with mental health issues. Like, but I so I'm curious in you when you say you live this dis- discipline life for self care. I mean, it's been it's been hard in my life, just the isolation. I mean, our clinic, thank God, is. Is, is, is very active, and we've got a large virtual platform, so I'm close to my colleagues, you know, in a, in a virtual setting, um, but my in-person, my in-person world has become much more uh, much, much smaller, you know, than, than, than pre-pandemic, it's starting to expand a little bit. But that's been, you know, that's been hard. And so thinking about my self-care, you know, exercise is extremely important. And I do notice a shift when that isn't happening. I, 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 we, I just have to make time for it. It's such a mental floss for me. You know, meditation, um, time with my family and connections with friends, and of course, you know, time with my my daughter and and, and and even family, you know, via Zoom or, or whatever. But I just I'm, I'm curious about some of the tools that you're doing um, that help you stay present in your in your work.
1: Yeah, I mean, this sort of veers, but there's actually data on it, which is interesting. So I never knew what an impact a pet would have on myself, my wife loves dogs. And we got a dog about a year and a half ago. And as a result, we go in nature almost every day with our dog for 45 minutes, sometimes to, you know, two hours. And it's had a huge impact on just the quality of my life, just being outside. And what's fascinating about that is there's a whole body of literature on nature and nature experiences and how that is good for the brain in a sense. And that sort of opens up maybe our conversation because I published four papers recently and all of them have to do with both the stress brain and then protecting the brain in a sense. And nature is one of the things that can protect the brain. And one may ask, well, why? Why is that? Well, first of all, let's define what nature is. Nature experiences can be even looking at beautiful landscapes of nature. It can be walking outside and being in nature, being in the wilderness, it could be just being around plants and having a garden. So the definition of what nature experiences are is quite expansive. But what's interesting is what what you derive from nature. So there's a lot of psychological theories that have been developed as a result of that. And we know there's different hypotheses. So one is the biophilia hypothesis, which is sort of interesting that we have this innate drive to be in nature. Another one is the stress reduction hypothesis, whereby being in nature seems to attenuate our stress response systems. Or there's the attention restoration theory, which is I think probably more accurate, where being in nature sort of reloads and resets our cognitive resources so that we can reestablish our own capacity to concentrate and pay attention later on. But nonetheless, all of it I think brings some, I would say allostasis to our whole organism in a sense, and especially our stress systems. When you bring that stability, even amidst change in your life by being in nature and by resetting everything, I think it gives you an opportunity to feel more good and nourished when you go back into your life. So having this wonderful dog has sort of brought nature back into my life and I've always been an outside sort of guy but it's now been blown out of proportion in the sense I'm outside a ton this little dog has so much energy I can't believe it but the love that I have for the dog and how it's just been so good for our family and how much time we spend outside in nature has just been tremendous and I know that not everybody has access to the forest that I have access to since I live in a sort of city slash rural area in Ontario, Canada. But if you have any ability to get outside and just be with a pet or just be with your family and walk and feel the fresh air and breathe in good air, that can do a lot for one's soul. So I think for me, that's one of the big game changers is just being in nature. And that's what the pandemic has done. As much as there's been a downside to the pandemic, yeah. which I won't you know, minimize because it's been massive for a lot of people in terms of their employment and their social isolation. And I only have massive empathy for everybody that's suffering. The flip side or the upside of the pandemic is it's caused and forced me to be involved in things I never would have thought about like nature. And that's had a huge impact in the quality of my life, personally speaking.
0: Yes, yep, that's absolutely correct. Um... Right, we've all we've all pivoted, and we're home, and we're we're outside in the world. I think much much more so. Um, all right, well, let me just ask you this, and then uh, how do you how do you uh, engage the? Well, first of all, tell me. I want to see. I'd like to hear about the the folks that you're seeing. What kind of um, patients you're seeing in clinical practice, but. How, it, what you've just described is incredibly inviting. I'm, I'm right outside the woods here and I'm just, you know, my, our office, we're, we're, we're across the river from a state forest and I'm just <laughs> really wanting to go out for a nice hike here. But um, how do you engage someone who's really depressed to set their toe outside, to get up off the couch, to turn the TV off or put the phone down?
1: Yes. Yeah, so when I do see people, I see them who are and they're in different sort of phases, let's say, of their illness, because sometimes people have mild depression, which could be just like having a common cold that just doesn't get better and it is interfering with the functionality and quality of their life. But they're still able to do some things or quite a bit. Then there are people who have more moderate and I would say severe forms of major depression, let's say. And you're right, their functionality becomes severely impaired, and sometimes their whole circadian rhythms are shifted so that they're awake when their family is sleeping, and they're sleeping when everybody's awake, and they're just living a life that's out of sync with everybody else. So the question you're asking is a good one. How do I engage somebody, let's say, who's depressed and really not engaged in life the way you would want them to be, and they are lacking motivation, they're feeling hopeless, They're despairing a lot, and maybe even they're having thoughts of suicide. I mean, that's a fairly heavy encounter, but not uncommon, at least in my experience. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I think is, again, you have to open up an opportunity so that you can understand the person's narrative. You want to hear their story. And if you can do so without interrupting too much, I think that can offer a great opportunity to learn from the patient and for you to gain a little bit of insight into what's going on in their world. But their world is not a good one. It's a world that they're descending into some sort of chaos. They're probably you know, feeling on some level, like why is this life happening? It's not worth living. What's the point? So you see a lot of people who sort of are succumbing to those types of thoughts. And you don't wanna give anybody false hope because you you don't wanna tell them their life is gonna be great when it sucks and it's not. But what you wanna do is just invite them into the possibility that things could move or shift a little bit more. And that's sort of what I do. I don't over promise anything. In fact, I like to over deliver on my services and under promise on everything. And what I hope is to help people to understand that if they move a little bit differently, aim a little bit differently, even if clumsily, it's probably gonna be better for them. And if they try just a little bit with something, then we could hopefully shift little by little over time and start seeing some real progress. But it is complicated because you're right. Sometimes the most a person can do is just sit with their family and not talk to them because they're so depressed, but at least they're sitting with their family. And Then maybe after a while with good treatment that activates their mind, activates their biology, gets them a little more motivated. Maybe they can start having a few conversations in the morning. Maybe their sleep can start improving with a little bit more movement. So You want to behaviorally activate people, but not overdo it. You don't want to put pressure on them because they have an illness that they're battling. And then you want to support them the whole time. And there is a lot of art to this. It's not something I can distill so easily to you on a podcast, but I think you're getting a sense and it's just a little bit by little bit. You just want to work with the person in front of you and you want to motivate them. You want to show them there is a potential to shift things a bit And you keep reinforcing things when they're doing well. You don't want to reinforce when they're not doing well. You want to certainly appreciate it, but you don't want to reinforce the very things that keep them contained in that state of inertia. You want to really reinforce reinforce the things that help them to overcome their own inertia and their own misery. And I think that's probably what I could say at this point, unless you have more questions.
0: How frequently do you see folks that are in this degree of struggle?
1: All the time. I mean, mean,
0: well, I mean, how how often often do you have an encounter with a given individual who's in this um, level of struggle? Do you see them weekly or biweekly?
1: It's weekly. I see patients like this weekly. Okay. And I see patients that have either a primary concern of anxiety, but they do have depressive symptoms or primary depression with anxiety symptoms. They tend to be married to each other. These are emotionally based problems with a lot of overlap. And then I also see patients with psychosis or I would say schizophrenia and psychotic disorders. That's probably more appropriate. And then I also see patients with bipolar spectrum disorder, very few with dementia. And I don't see a lot of patients with autism spectrum disorder, though though some, most of the patients I see have just primary mental disorders, I would say, if we wanted to put some kind of label on it. And I see them weekly, um, a lot of patients weekly.
0: Just to finish up your previous comments around, Mm -hmm. you know, just approaching them, engaging them in the journey. I'm assuming that your interventions may, therefore, certainly at the start, be very simple. Like it's not going to be a typical functional medicine practice where, you know, we're doing a pretty heavy lab workup and starting them on a, you know, a a very a relatively involved supplement and dietary intervention. Is that is that true? I think somewhat true, but somewhat not. I think it's a
1: phenomenal question because I think you'll see that how I approach patients may in some ways be similar to you without maybe a lot of the testing. And, you know, we just may not fundamentally see testing in the same way, and that's totally fine. I'm not here to convince anybody. But what I do with my patients is I do aggressively treat them. So when I see them, I don't just take a slow approach to someone who needs more immediate help. And I don't believe that you can expeditiously necessarily change people overnight but you can pragmatically and then expeditiously give them aggressive treatment to start shifting things, hopefully sooner than later. So I do load them up on a base level of interventions. And this is not atypical to all of your listeners and probably including yourself. I give them good amounts of omega-3 essential fatty acids, vitamin D3, B-complex vitamins, vitamin C, things that I think are foundational. And then for every patient that has particular issues, then I would give specific treatment for their problem, whether that's depression, anxiety, and so on. And I would use high doses if I feel there won't be too many issues with tolerating the intervention. Of course, the dose is slowly increased over time, but I don't waste their time. Like I don't think there's value in under-treating any human being who's in distress. So I do give people a fairly aggressive amount of treatment right when I treat them, or right when I see them, I should say, so that we're trying to maximize the clinical outcome here
0: okay good so they know from the get go
1: yeah I don't want to waste time maybe I'll only have a few visits with someone maybe this will be the only visit like I'd rather see how much I can help somebody chemically because they are in this horrible biological state and when you think about it like most of my thoughts emanate from a stress I would say foundation I think when you look at this construct that we could call stress, it almost permeates or runs through all mental disorders. And if we would agree that stress could amplify anything and make things worse, particularly chronic and enduring stress, then I think we have a real obligation then to not only give specific treatment for whatever emotionally based or other mental health issue they have, but we also have an obligation to see if we can reduce some of the awful and cascading impacts that stress can have on their biology. And to do so quickly is probably a smart idea than to waste a patient's time by doing just too little at the first encounter. So I'm someone who believes patients should be treated aggressively and they shouldn't, and their time is just as valuable as mine. And I should treat them as quickly and expeditiously, though, again, I know the outcomes are variable, but I should do whatever I can as soon as I can to help these patients. That's my mindset
0: that makes uh, that's, that's I appreciate that that makes good sense um, what so did, like how, how what is what's a typical omega-3 starting dose for you
1: yeah so it may have like I don't know 1500 milligrams of EPA or 500 DHA or sometimes I'll go to three grams EPA one okay. gram DHA so I really do push things but to me omega-3s are sort of weak interventions, they're, sure. not, they're not strong enough in terms of their impact on outcomes with mental health. They certainly can lean things in a better direction, but I don't think as an intervention itself, it's very strong, right? Like I think if you look at the data on, let's say saffron extract for major depression Well, that has some interesting comparability to SSRIs, though of course its mechanism is much different. Saffron seems to amplify norepinephrine and dopamine, so it has some really good uses potentially for patients that are, say, tired, they just feel like they're just mopey and fatigued, and certainly they don't feel like they want to do anything. So you know, and then when you think of a dose of saffron, well, you're not going to help somebody with a 15 milligram dose. They probably need somewhere between 30 and 100 milligrams to have any benefit from it. So I would dose people pretty high on that if they're depressed, but I wouldn't think that an omega-3, for example, would help to the degree that a high-dose saffron extract would. So that's sort of my thinking. I, I would give an omega-3 because it can lean things in a better direction. Certainly, if you look at data, even in bipolar spectrum disorder, You can see in any kind of meta-analysis, things lean towards omega-3s helping with depression. It certainly can improve depressive symptoms, but it's not, to me, a very strong intervention. It just helps when it's given in combination with, say, proper treatment, like mainstream psychiatric treatment. But when you look at a saffron extract, for example, it can have, to me, an efficacy for major depression that's fairly similar to drug treatment. Right. or major right. depression, if it's dosed appropriately, so that's sort of how I think about a lot of these different interventions that we have access to.
0: I, I gotcha. I gotcha. I was I was actually just more curious about how aggressive you dose, and but I I certainly understand that it. I mean, you know, it takes a while before omega threes are going to be incorporated into the lipid membrane and actually mm-hmm. turn on the various cascade Oof. of you know, anti-inflammatory events. So that does, does make sense. But yeah, so, so then let's just jump over there. I mean, you're not just using saffron, you're using, um, you're using um, lavender extract, you're using St. John's wort, you're using 5-HTP and you're, and you're using them in, you know, again, doses beyond what we might normally be thinking of. I mean, let's just talk about the major depressive patient what what are some of the top what are your top go-tos would you say let's say somebody let's let's go back
1: a little bit and then we'll get into that because I think I think it could be interesting so Mm
0: -hmm.
1: when I wrote some papers on stress I did so because I I just felt I wasn't knowledgeable enough on stress and and I don't think I still am I think I'm just someone who's a stress junkie but not in a bad way in a way that I want to learn more and more about it because There's people like the late Bruce McEwen, who was just brilliant in terms of his stress researcher, stress research, and there's so many other people that have just done incredible work in this field. But I thought to myself, what's going on in the patients I'm working with from a stress perspective? And can I on some level stop some of these deleterious effects? So first of all, what I know is that for a lot of mental health issues, particularly anxiety and depression, there seems to be some bottom up control that's sort of running the show, which isn't helpful. So when you look at depression, for example, what you see is these patients are sort of not cognitively quite there as you and I, are. they have trouble making decisions. They tend to lean more to thinking negatively or pessimistically about things. And then they tend to not have good top-down control. So the prefrontal cortex seems to be underperforming in a sense, and then their amygdala, which is certainly a very subcortical part of our brain. It's a very ancient part of our brain. It's part of our limbic apparatus. This amygdala tends to be in a sense, running too much of the show. And they're more emotionally controlled than having good top-down control over their emotional center in a sense. And, and you'll see that sort of circuit happening in a lot of mental health issues. now. I'm very much simplifying it, but I think it's a good model when you kind of think about is the cortex sort of underperforming and the amygdala overperforming in a sense? And when you kind of understand how that can have profound implications on a chronic stress sort of outcome and how people are managing in their life, it gives sort of good reason to give not only a lot of natural health products or other avenues of support, But then you could see just what would happen to this person if they're not treating themselves in any way over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years of their life where they're going to have a lot more of the mental health issues, right? Because when your stress system becomes so amplified because of chronic and enduring stress and you can't somehow mitigate the demands that are being placed on your whole biology, well, as you know, you get damage to your cardiovascular system. Your metabolic system to your central nervous system and you're more apt to die early or at least have disease whether that's some type of cardiovascular chronic issue like hypertension or maybe even atherosclerosis that gets to the point where you start having clawed coronary arteries and maybe you're even increasing your risk of a myocardial infarction maybe you're setting the stage for neurodegenerative disease later on because cortisol can be very toxic to certain brain centers are very vital to our own sort of, I would say, nuance and survival in this very complex world. So I think I look at all my patients now from this perspective that their system is sort of out of whack in a sense when I'm seeing them. And if we can sort of give interventions that helps one brain system sort of be relaxed and another brain system gain some measure of control, then they can start having more agency.
2: I'm Lara Zacharia, lead nutritionist with Dr. Kara Fitzgerald's team, doctor of pharmacy and educator in the fields of functional medicine and personalized nutrition. Let's tell you a little about our friends at Metabolic Maintenance. Since 1984, Metabolic Maintenance has earned an incredibly loyal customer base by producing pure, excipient-free, professional-quality supplements and working closely with physicians and nutrition experts like ours broadening their catalog and refining research-based formulas to best support a variety of health needs. Their stellar reputation extends to the popular nutraceuticals, Methylpro. Distributed by metabolic maintenance, Methylpro offers superior L-methylfolate products in the widest dosing options available. Research shows L-methylfolate supports cognitive function, healthy neurotransmitter production, and a balanced mood. Methylpro and metabolic maintenance products can now be delivered together straight to your door, no prescription necessary. For Dr. Kara Fitzgerald listeners, use code KF21, that's KF21, and receive 20% off online purchases at metabolicmaintenance.com. That's metabolicmaintenance.com. Thanks for listening and supporting New Frontiers.
1: Yeah, so what I'm referring to is when we give natural health products, we should try to think, okay, so this product may influence a certain neurotransmitter system, but then how might that impact a brain circuit that's sort of not functioning in the way that we want? Can that bring more nuance or functionality between, let's say, the prefrontal cortex and amygdala, maybe even the hippocampus as well, because that's an important part too. And I'm not probably explaining them well enough at this moment because the details on how they work is pretty complex. But in a sense, if your listeners can get just a little bit interested and start doing their own research into this, I think that it makes a lot of sense. We should be thinking beyond chemistry. That's what I'm saying. You should be thinking about, can I sort of influence a brain circuit that may also be undermining a patient's ability to function in this world in an appropriate way? And I think that's why a lot of natural medicines have potential value beyond their immediate chemical effects, because they may have durable effects that do bring some level of, I would say, regularity to our brain systems that are so fundamentally important in the quality of our life. So you were talking about things like 5-HTP, I mentioned saffron, or St. John's wort, or even SAMe, all of these agents certainly impact different chemicals. I think if you start thinking about the chemicals, the impact, then they should have the ability not only to activate people and to help with depression, but to bring, again, some balance or some regulation to a neurocircuit that needs some kind of corrective action. And I know it almost sounds too reductionistic, and it is, and I don't really think reductionistically, but I think there's some value in some reductionism when you're working with people particularly those that are in distress. So if we look at 5-HTP, you mentioned that. Well, 5-HTP, as you know, is a precursor to serotonin. And I only use timed or sustained release formulations because I'm really unconvinced that formulations that aren't timed or sustained release do very much. I've seen far better clinical results when I use 5-HTP that is either time release or sustained release. And I don't think you're going to get much benefit in doses that are below 400 milligrams. Like I've gone as high as 1,200 milligrams, and on rare occasion even higher. And what in divided I divided th- doses. Yeah, in divided doses, or even sometimes a one-day dosing. It really depends on the patient and their own compliance. And I don't typically see a lot of adverse effects either. I've even given up to 400 milligrams of 5-HTP on patients who with patients who are taking standard SSRI treatment and I don't see any ill effects. In fact, if you give an appropriate dose of 5-HTP with an SSRI, I don't think you're going to have any adverse outcomes with that. But nonetheless, I do this, and, and you could see again, so what is 5-HTP2? It, it, it increases serotonin. You're hoping appreciable amounts will get into the central nervous system. I assume it does do that. Now, serotonin certainly is a chemical that has multiple effects. I mean, it's one of the most well-studied neurotransmitters I would say, in the history of psychiatry. But we know it does enhance well-being. We know it probably has all sorts of other cascading effects that just give people some levity over their complex life and how uncomfortable they may be feeling. And in doing so, I think it gives them a little bit more top-down control. It gives them a little bit more agency over their difficult emotions. So they can start then seeing things through a more negative affective bias than a a more positive affective bias than a negative affective bias. So when you take something like 5-HTP and you start upregulating serotonin, then you start shifting people from this negative affective bias that is causing them to feel so emotionally distressed and despairing to a state of mind that can be more open to positivity. And it doesn't happen right away. It takes several weeks, right, for this to build up enough to have any effect but that's a good thing. You know, it's, these are time dependent treatments that need time to exert any positive outcome. But there's so many that we have Mm -hmm. access to or, and in a sense, so little as well. Like I don't think in terms of naturopathic medicine, we have hundreds of treatments for depression or anxiety, but I think we have a sufficient amount of treatments for depression, anxiety to, to help people. But when you think about depression, we're talking maybe about eight to ten treatments that can have some real value, but I don't think we have more than that. And well, what are those?
0: What are those eight? Yeah,
1: so it could be five HDP. It could be acetyl-L-carnitine. Acetyl-L-carnitine is really interesting. It's it's a fast-acting antidepressant. Certainly, it can help with brain energy if you wanted to use that term. But it's interesting because it seems to amplify the production of BDNF from the hippocampus, hmm. which is really one of the main reasons why they think that or why I would say research has shown that antidepressants seem to kick in several weeks later, it takes a while for the hippocampus to start sort of amplifying its own production of BDNF. And carnitine seems to have an effect that does amplify the production of BDNF from the hippocampus too. And it seems to be rather fast acting. Hmm. I, but it seems to work, in my opinion, better in older people. I'm not sure why, but I, I do think it tends to work better in older people than younger people. And the dose again is high, three grams a day, I think is necessary. Typically, you can go as high as 4,000 milligrams a day. There's even rhodiola, as you know, it's like an MAO, MAOI inhibitor or a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, I should say. Okay. It seems to increase all the monoamines like serotonin, dopamine and norepinephrine. But rhodiola is, is a good treatment. It has another effect on the HPA access that seems to be helpful it seems to bring again some calmness to that storm of hpa overactivity that can be part of the chronic stress i would say apparatus that that happens to a lot of the patients i work with so rhodiola does have antidepressant effects now not all the studies show that some studies show that it doesn't seem to be better than placebo but other studies show that it is better than placebo. But nonetheless, I still use it, but I don't use a small dose typically. I, I yeah. almost put all my patients up to 750 milligrams, and some go over a thousand milligrams of rhodiola rosea extract that's standardized.
0: So and when every, you're when you're giving ahead. a dose, when yeah. you're just, I just want to clarify yeah. when you're giving these doses, yeah. are you dividing them? Can you just maybe be a little bit more specific when you're... Yeah,
1: so how, I don't how, always. No, I don't. I I typically like if someone has a busy day, I maybe would have them take their rhodiola rosea extract with breakfast. I find that this is a kind of herbal product that is best taken with food. It can be really nauseating in some people. And if they don't take it with food, they can get pretty nauseous. So, you know, I'll I'll have them take it with breakfast, but a pretty high dose.
0: What about their four grams of acetyl-L carnitine?
1: I'll I'll have them take that away from food because again, food will interfere with its absorption. So that one, you'll know, you have patients take like 1500 milligrams, let's say before like 30 minutes to an hour before a meal, say twice a day. And then you can certainly increase the dose from there. So it really depends like five HTP timed or sustained release that can be taken with food because it certainly doesn't seem to be undermined if it's a time release version with it's taken with food. So, I mean, there's a lot of nuance there, and I appreciate you wanting me to clarify because that is important.
0: Right. Um, mm. I just want to tell folks again: show notes, head over there. You can, you'll see again. The, the, you you can find Dr. Presky's, um, you know, top interventions and in how he's suggesting daily dosing. And I'm just trying to ping him a little more specific on the on the dosing structure. But you'll be able to find these and and others. Um, as well as his references and you know rationale for use but go ahead tell me give me another couple of your favorites
1: yeah I mean it's hard to say a favorite because
0: or maybe what oh go ahead yeah,
1: yeah because when you're working with people you gain a certain gestalt about what to do there's a certain instinct that you develop over time as a doctor so I can just try to distill it I think Sammy is unfortunately has poor utility because of the cost. I hardly recommend it because when you look at clinical studies that have effectively used SAMe in major depression, for example, the doses can be anywhere from 800 milligrams a day to 3,200 milligrams a day. And I don't know many people who could afford 3,200 milligrams a day of SAMe because yes, it's a methylating compound. Yes, it has some real value in, in that sort of biochemical pathway. And by virtue of that, you can increase, again, production of monoamine neurotransmitters. But the problem is its utility is poor. I don't have many patients who could afford that at all. So I don't use that. I I certainly think St. John's Wort extract is fine. The problem, again, is when someone's on any medication because of its impact on the CYP3A4 system in the liver, as well as other cytochrome P450 systems, I think you're sort of at a loss of how to use it because it just has too many interactions with medications. So the truth is when you're dealing with depression, you have to be creative and you have to sort of get a gestalt about what may be appropriate. What isn't the good news is I use a lot of things in combination. I may push five HTP with saffron and maybe curcumin and theanine, for example, like I don't just rely on one thing. And then I have all those other foundational approaches. So I try to just, give my patients an opportunity to start feeling better, and I'll use as many of the evidence informed treatments that I think have fairly good evidence mm-hmm. when I'm working with them. But certainly, every depressed person is different. Every one of their situations is different, and that does dictate a more nuance, and that's hard to speak to on, on a podcast. It It's something that I should probably articulate in future publications so that people would know perhaps how to better apply these things when they're faced with different patient presentations. I yes. would like to do that in the future.
0: That would be great. And I said a little algorithm and, and yeah, how you might walk through yeah. um, a case. Well, I mean, we're going to, as clinicians, you know, you've given us these really lovely resources and we're, we're going to start in, and if they're not on medication, you know, we might, or even if they are, I think, 5-HTP, excuse me, St. John's word aside, we might start with a couple. Um, when do we, or, or, or more, like when, when are you going to know that you're heading in the right direction? When are you going to tweak your interventions?
1: I think you have to certainly engage your patients in regular care. Mm -hmm. And that could be two to three weeks after you see them. Some people need weekly appointments, they just need that extra support. But when you engage them in regular care, you should use some kind of clinical rating instrument to see if there's at least some symptomatic improvement. And then of course, talking to them, you could see how much more functional they are or not functional, let's say, or they're not functional enough. And then you have to make changes going forward. I mean, you know how it is. It's just a constant sort of up and down battle where you have to add something here, take something away, increase something there. And it is something that is a work in progress. But if you've committed to your patient they've committed to working with you, then at least I would say two to six months should be sufficient to get them on the right track, particularly those that start off rather impaired by their own mental health struggle. But it is a lot of work, and you should be tweaking things all the time. I mean, I tell my patients, email, call me, I'm available. And they don't overstep those boundaries. They tend to only get in touch when they need my help, and I'm happy to do so. So you just got to be available and be receptive to the idea that you're not going to hit a home run most of the time. You're going to have to make a lot of adjustments and tweaks as you're working with them, because when you're dealing with so many moving parts in the lives of our patients, particularly those that are struggling with mental health issues, it's not straightforward it's very very complex work but let's sort of touch upon anxiety too we didn't mention that mm-hmm. and i think there's value in at least mentioning a little bit about anxiety if if we have time but you know yep. depression and anxiety as you know are considered both emotionally based disorders in a sense and there is a lot of overlap between both of those situations And what I do when I see an anxious patient where I I would say their anxiety symptoms are more dominant, again, I try to throw as many treatments after foundational treatments as I can to shift things in a positive way so they feel more comfortable in their own skin. They feel like they can be more present in their life. They feel they can do things without feeling so overwhelmed by their own anxiety. So ashwagandha, there's probably now about four to six studies now clearly showing it reduces symptoms of stress and anxiety and even depressive symptoms but more for stress and anxiety what's fascinating is in three of the studies that have been published all of them have shown a reproducible effect in lowering the mean level of cortisol when they compare baseline to end of study cortisol levels by around i think five measurements five units and i forget the units maybe like micrograms per liter or something i could be wrong but again very interesting that it's been consistently able to lower the mean level cortisol over about 50 to 60 days but if you look at the data of those studies it's the withanolides that's the component of ashwagandha that's important and most of my colleagues and i say this with only kindness they tend to be underdosing ashwagandha and not giving enough of it to get the substantial amount of withanolides that patients need you need at least 30 milligrams to have any appreciable effect i would say but I've gone as high as 120 milligrams of withanolides. A study on OCD used 120 milligrams of withanolides to augment wow. clinical outcomes from SSRIs for patients with a di- who are diagnosed with OCD. Even though OCD is not formally an anxiety disorder anymore, you can see these patients struggle immensely with just overwhelming anxiety. But I use ashwagandha a lot. I use chamomile extract. I use you holy use basil, lavender, and so on. Go ahead.
0: Yep chamomile you go very aggressively there as well
1: yeah because you have to I mean it does interact with the GABA system in the brain it does certainly bring some resonance to that I would say amygdala apparatus so it helps people to again feel less over aroused by their anxiety less uncomfortable and then it again it gives them more agency to to live in the world without feeling so horrible about just their their physiological state in a sense and their mental state so you need things to settle people down I tell my interns like no one's going to see you and want to come back if you're not giving them treatment when they're uncomfortable you have to treat them and I think under treating people is never good so I use high doses of chamomile because it does have effects that can help people but I don't think it's as powerful as say a lavender extract I'm Fairly impressed with lavender, but again, 160 milligrams seems to be at least the key. I've gone way higher than that. I have some patients that take well over 600 milligrams of lavender extract a day, and they find it to be very helpful. I haven't seen any adverse effect except maybe some lavender burps or some reflux, but it's all very manageable. Mm -hmm. But again, you have to dose really high with lavender to get that sort of strong, I think, GABAergic effect to bring again some resonance to their amygdala and to help calm their whole physiology down in a sense. And then I still use niacinamide. Niacinamide has really no good studies on it for anxiety. I've written case reports. I did an N of one federally approved trial in Canada on niacinamide. Isn't that funny? An (laughs) N of one federally approved. My government of Canada approved an N of one study that I did many years ago. It it was fascinating to go through the process. But the truth is niacinamide still is a very helpful anti-anxiety agent. It has a strong effect on the GABA receptor complex in the brain as far as I'm concerned. And there are some patients that can't believe the value it's brought to their anxiety just by calming that part of their whole, I would say anxiety apparatus down. It's a strong, I think it has a strong affinity for the GABA receptor complex. And I love to do a clinical trial, even of a small one with 30 patients at some point in my my lifetime just to see if what I observe clinically is true. And but I go going high, I go back. high with it. Yeah, way going back. back
0: to, way back, like to the what, the 60s maybe was it? When yeah, niacinamide
1: has son- been studied for decades, like since the 1950s at least. And there's been a lot of animal research to show it does have GABA effects and does get in the central nervous system. So we know it certainly does that, but we just don't have good clinical data on it other than just anecdotal reports. Wow. Passion flower extract is another agent. Again, mm-hmm. strong GABAergic effects. I go high again with it. I mm-hmm. don't think, again, you're going to see much value unless you don't go high. And some people worry, will it be over-sedating? Well, let your patient tell you. If your right. patient says they're over-sedated, then back down the dose a bit. But when you see someone who's just so in distress and uncomfortable, anything is sort of pushing them towards more uncomfortable feelings. Like a Maybe their breathing is more shallow. Maybe they're having some chest tightness. Maybe they're just sweaty a lot. Maybe they're just feeling... On edge and irritable. Maybe they're just worrying so much during the day, they just can't shut their mind off. Well, they need to be settled down. So I think if we don't use appropriate doses, as I've said throughout this whole podcast today, I don't think we're going to give them the kind of outcome that they are looking for. And same with valerian. People shy away from valerian, but I think it's a strong GABAergic agent. And the only negative is you have the few people who get a paradoxical effect from it, where they get agitated and more anxious from it. Why is that? I don't know. A couple of times. I have no idea, but I can tell you in my own experience. So when I take about 500 or 600 milligrams of valerian root, I'm fine. But if I double it to say 1200 milligrams, I am wired. I'm activated. I'm up all night. So for me, there's a sweet spot with valerian. And I assume that's probably like that with a fairly large percentage of people. I think people tend to do well with it at five or six hundred milligrams. When you sort of go double or above a thousand milligrams of a valerian root extract where it's standardized, you're probably more likely to to cause that paradoxical reaction. I don't know why, no idea. Mm -hmm. But I just know that it's something that can be very uncomfortable for people when it happens. So I try to be a little cautious in my dosing and then theanine's interesting i mean theanine sort of modulates alpha waves which of course is good gives us that calm that focused attention but it does have some GABA effects but it's it's really not that strong i think i'm just learning about theanine and, and its value um i don't think it's a strong anti-anxiety agent it certainly impacts the GABA system it may have more of an effect on alpha sort of waves but i'm not so sure but again, as a complementary treatment to other things, sure, try it and see what outcome you have. But again, you've got to go at least 400 milligrams, I would say, to have any appreciable impact. But you can see there's not a lot of treatments for mental health, in my mind, specific treatments that we can use. And that's why you have to use a lot of them in combination, in my mind, to get good outcomes. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're you're not going to give your patient the chance that they need to get a little bit better in their life.
0: What about so you talk a lot about minerals, and that's very orthomolecular of you. <laughs> you what do you? I mean, you prescribe a lot of micro like, minerals, or 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 you know, you wrote about specifically about broad spectrum micronutrients.
1: Yeah, I mean that that I mean I won't. About 15 to 20 years ago, this sort of became new and novel to use a large amount of of micronutrients in combination but not just like a one a day multivitamin mineral supplement but using them in fairly high doses spread throughout the day like five pills let's say three times a day and what's interesting is that dramatically raises obviously the concentrations of micronutrients in one's body let's say and then obviously you're going to get all sorts of enzymatic changes you're probably going to compensate for smps and you're probably going to push certain reactions towards, you know, end products that may, you know, upregulate or amplify neurotransmitter systems. So there's probably a broad spectrum amount of benefits from giving people large doses of micronutrients spread throughout the day. And what we found now is there's a lot of data to suggest that's true. Data showing insomnia or bipolar spectrum disorder or psychosis or people that have been through trauma. I mean, the publications on this approach now are expanding a lot. And I think it's a worthwhile treatment, but I don't use it a lot because again, I'm, it, it's, it, it has a utility, but I'm not finding it as a utility for everything. I think it's, it's not as fast acting and that's the problem. It takes a while for it to build up in people's system. Mm. And, and I don't always have that luxury of time. So for me, I I use it when I see more of the patients who have a bipolar spectrum disorder and they're wanting to see if they could be on a little bit less medication and get more regulation or someone who has a schizophrenia and they have a chronic situation. And again, they want to see if they can lower their doses, for example. And I do think a broad spectrum micronutrient approach can definitely lower doses of mainstream medications, but you can't do that without being very careful. And you can't do that without being collaborative with they're prescribing psychiatrists for, for example.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. And so, so just a really high dose multivitamin mineral formula. Yeah. Are, multiple
1: right? times throughout the day. Like it's not one no. a day, it's up to 15 pills spread throughout the day. Yeah. Yeah. that's a yeah. Lot. Okay. And then I use a lot of magnesium. I think yeah. one needs to, when you're dealing yeah. with a mental health population for good reason, you know, it's an NMDA receptor antagonist. It's certainly, um, can can help in people who may even have treatment resistant depression because of that effect there's a lot of interesting papers coming out about magnesium and depression but magnesium also seems to be something that we excrete rather rapidly when we're stressed which is fascinating so you we may have to compensate for people that are under chronic stress by loading them up with actually sufficient magnesium so they actually can replete their stores that are being depleted. So it has a lot of effects that I think are quite therapeutically important. And I do use a lot of magnesium in my practice too.
0: Do you use single higher dose amino acid therapies?
1: I've tried, I mean, other than 5-HTP and say theanine and the ones that I've mentioned, I I don't do a lot of that. I mean, I, I don't, I'm rather unconvinced that there is useful as i used to think i don't mm-hmm. i mean i'll use tryptophan by prescription i mean in ontario i have some prescriptive rights as a naturopathic doctor so i can not prescribe say tryptophan when needed it's it's okay i mean i think if you're going to give somebody tryptophan for sleep it's it's sort of not always a good it's, not, it's hit or miss i don't think you're going to get a predictable response
0: well it's if not- you have if 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 the kynurenine pathway is Upregulated. If you suspect inflammation, then it might be contraindicated. Would that be correct?
1: Yeah, I totally agree. It could be contraindicated. Okay. Absolutely. And what about
0: what about ahead. glycine?
1: Yeah. So, I've been using glycine more for sleep, and and here's sort of a little trick that I've been doing. So, glycine, as you know, tastes sweet.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We know and in, in evolving literature on sleep, it seems to do a few things. It seems to increase that sort of deep phase of sleep sort of the state the third stage of sleep where we're in delta sleep where we're more parasympathetic where there's a lot of heart rate variability there's a lot of coupling between our between our breathing and our and our heart rate it's all very important it's restorative but what's fascinating is glycine seems to increase our third stage of sleep seems to help our temperature drop more which is important we have to actually have a drop in temperature to have a better sleep and it seems to help with i would say the fatigue that some people can get when they're not getting enough sleep, they're a little tired the next day. So glycine can seem to overcome some of that insomnia-related fatigue. And I've been using it. So I, I, I have my patients take a tea, typically that could have, say, passionflower or valerian or Melissa or lemon balm, just typical things in a sleepy time type of tea. And I have them put a teaspoon of glycine about an hour before bed. And I've seen a lot of patients respond beautifully to that to help them with sleep. So I've been using glycine for sleep more than any other issue because insomnia-related problems or insomnia disorders, we would say, or sleep disorders are fairly common among the population I work with. Either it could be a problem that's comorbid or it could be a consequence of their depression or anxiety. Nonetheless, they need to sleep, it's important. And glycine can be quite helpful for that. But I don't use a ton of single amino acids. I use certainly some. But I mentioned the ones I will use, like acetyl L carnitine, uh, 5 HDP, glycine, theanine. Those are a lot of the ones I've used or use at the moment.
0: You're also, obviously, you know, you're looking at diet, and, you know, you speak about, again, about inflammation as an underlying driver. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You're, you know, you reference in your your paper in the Townsend Letter on Stress. I think it's part one, uh, palmitoyl ethanolamide, which I, we've been using here more and more. Basically, you have to deal with these underlying, the underlying inflammatory or pain mm-hmm. conditions if you're going to turn around depression, I mean, or or uh, any mental struggle. Do you want to d- kind of speak to this a little bit as we head towards Yeah, close? I mean, it,
1: it's interesting because as you know, there's a lot of, I think, Papers now that have come out to show clear relationship between inflammation and mental health issues or mental illness, let's say. But it's more than that, like if you look at a lot of the patients that have problems that are mental in nature, let's say it's not just that we're again we're more than just our mind in a sense. So they're typically going to have metabolic issues. They're typically mm-hmm. going to have other problems like chronic pain issues. It's amazing how chronic pain can destroy someone's life, right? They, they can't focus on anything because the pain is just so horrible and they can't find any way to get it under control. So I think when you're working with a mental health population, you have to sort of look at all the cascading impacts that an inflammatory state can cause, whether that's impacts on cholesterol, whether that's impacts related to just general inflammation that may be causing problems or whether that is something to do with chronic pain. So I think you have to load people up. So I use all sorts of treatments, whether that is PEA, like you mentioned, it's just a fatty acid, PEA amplifies the endocannabinoid system, probably has some antihistamine effects as well, but it has a whole cascade of other interesting effects, Mm -hmm. whether that's on nitric oxide, whether that's on glial cells even, these are non-neuronal cells that have important roles. Like there's so many interesting avenues with our medicine that I love because it just there's just more than one impact, right? So PEA actually could be a very useful antidepressant. I don't know if people are aware. There was a study where they added it to SSRIs to improve outcomes and it worked rather well. But it has a wonderful effect on pain regardless of etiology. But I think it's very useful for neurogenic pain. So I see patients... Who have chronic pain. I don't think I'm an expert in chronic pain, but certainly I'm very interested in trying to do what I can. And I think more recently PEA is showing itself to be helpful, but you have to dose it again. I think at least 1200 milligrams a day for over two months to see if it's going to benefit anybody. And I think that's important. I use berberine in high doses because I think again, someone in their 40th year, 50th sort of year and so on needs all the support they can get to mitigate harm later on in their life. And Berberine has good effects on modulating the cholesterol profile, but also helping with insulin sensitivity. And again, these are important things to think about because a person who struggles mentally and who's getting older doesn't just have problems, let's say, of the mind or brain, if you want to say. They have problems of their whole being. And we should be giving them things that attenuate risk, whether that's lowering cholesterol, whether that's mitigating pain or lowering inflammation. So I I use every available tool that I can think of. And I think that's an important part of, I think, a holistic or comprehensive practice.
0: All right. And we could talk. We could just continue this conversation. I think that clinicians are going to find it very helpful. But just a couple final questions for you. One is lithium. Are you using lithium in practice? Yeah, I
1: wish I could. Unfortunately, in the province of Ontario, any form of lithium, even if it's orotate at like five milligrams or 10 milligrams a day, is considered a drug. And though my patients can find it, they could buy it, they could order it. I can't recommend it or give them guidance on it because that's contravening my scope of practice. I would love to be able to give lithium orotate as a treatment. I think it has real value. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting. It may even have some value in mitigating risk of suicidal impulses, though I can't say that's true. I can say there looks like to be there could be some some data there to suggest that. But it also has good effects on mood like lithium can absolutely help with mood. And I wish that I could use it clinically. I, I can't, which is hmm. regrettable.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, that's my, that, well, I guess I have two more questions now. I, I wanted to ask you just, you know, a little bit of your thoughts around, you know, supporting patients that are suicidal. Um, speaking of lithium any i mean i know obviously we're at the end of our, our time yeah but let's here, let's i can briefly yeah. talk so when some.
1: someone's when someone's talking about that their life isn't worth living that doesn't mean they're going to kill themselves that's just they're in despair but when but when you ask more questions to people sometimes they will open up and tell you yeah you know i i've been thinking about killing myself and i even have been thinking about how and then the truth is when they have that level of thought and they're actually thinking about it in a real way, then you really should take action. That, that person should know at that moment that you're very concerned about their well-being and they should take the right steps and, and get them to a hospital for an evaluation. But there's a lot we can do too when someone doesn't say they're suicidal. See, the problem is we have this mythology that people have to say they're, they're you know, thinking about killing themselves and they have a plan to do anything. That's not true. A lot of people may say nothing and they could still kill themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things to look for. Does the person have a sense of feeling entrapped by their life? Do they feel that they're a burden to others? Do they look like they're mobilized and ready to do something? So when you see an absence of a blink reflex, for example, that could be an important sort of clinical sign. Maybe they're getting themselves mobilized to do something very, very risky that puts their life in jeopardy. Maybe they have lost good cognitive control over themselves. You know, maybe they're not sleeping. They're getting more and more anxiety every day, and they're just not sleeping day after day, and they're getting more and more nihilistic. So they don't have to say they want to kill themselves to be at risk. And I think there's a real important point I'm trying to make is that your listeners should really investigate for themselves something called suicidal crisis syndrome. And this is an important construct now, this being more and more studied. These are certain signs and symptoms that people can display, even without saying they want to kill themselves, that puts them at very high risk of killing themselves, in a sense. And there's now studies being done all over North America and the world that are showing this to be a very valid sort of diagnostic entity, in a sense, that gives people a sense of, of something that may happen in someone's future that's not good for them, which is, you know, once you're dead, you're dead, there's no coming back. So the idea here is, you have to be perceptive enough to realize that someone doesn't have to say they want to kill themselves to kill themselves. And I've regrettably worked with five patients to my knowledge that have taken their own life. And there could be some, I don't know that have too. right. I've been in practice a long time, but it's just so devastating as a doctor when you lose a patient like that. And it, it really strips a little part of your own soul away from your own identity. You feel crushed by that. Not to mention you feel a lot of guilt and, despair for the family that now has to deal with a loved one that no longer is is alive so what do I do when I see people that aren't to the level of really wanting to kill themselves or I don't feel that their signs and symptoms are presenting that way but I feel they're they're sort of on the cusp of going down that nihilistic I would say train in a sense you try to just commit to your commit to them and try to help them to sort of see there's an opportunity to live a little bit better but you don't overdo it you don't over promise anything. You just say, "What are you willing to do? What are you willing to do that's a little bit different today than tomorrow?" Like you would with any depressed patient, let's say. Right. And you try to give a glimmer of opportunity there. But I can tell you, it's messy work because there's a lot of reasons for people to be in despair and to be sad, and maybe even to contemplate their own death because their to- life could just be abysmal. Maybe they've lost a job. Maybe they lost a loved one. Maybe. They, they've had so many hurts over their lifetime that they don't even feel they can go on anymore. They're just so wounded by their own existence. Who knows? But the point is, we have to try as doctors. We have to do what it, whatever we can to help somebody when we feel there's a need for them to, to get some kind of help. And maybe it's beyond our competency, but then we should find the resources to help that person. I mm-hmm. don't have anything magical to say about it, but I can tell you, if you are ever worried about a person, that should tell you you should act on it. You shouldn't just pretend it, it's not there. You should trust your own instincts of worry and make sure you're getting your patient to the safety that they need, or at least implementing a proper treatment plan for them.
0: I'm assuming you've got a you've got a, a, a offering of community resources to help bridge patients.
1: Yes. And what I what I tell, like I've been involved in some legal cases where I've been providing expert opinion on the work of others about patients that unfortunately have, have died by suicide. And what I notice across the board is, is doctors aren't planning for safety. So, you know, you can't determine what a patient's going to do in between an office visit, and you can't predict their life, right? But what you can do is when they leave your office with a treatment plan, there should be a measure of safety planning in that plan. It's not a suicide contract where they sign something that's so silly, like I won't kill myself, that, that doesn't do anything but makes the doctor feel artificially better. But it makes patients feel really crappy because they're forced to sign something that is really useless. But safety planning is different. Safety planning is a litany of things that patients can do when they're distressed. So when I'm feeling a certain way, who do I reach out to? When I'm feeling a certain way, what should I do? to help myself, whether that's exercise or calling a friend or whatever. So you go through planning with a patient and you are clear on the the set of tools that they've identified during the encounter that are helpful for them. So they know who to reach out to when they're feeling this distress. But when doctors don't do any safety planning, when they have people that are at say some level of risk, you know, moderate risk, let's say, well, you're, you're putting yourself in jeopardy as a doctor. You're not doing your due diligence. So I think the only thing I would tell you is I think your listeners, if they're not doing it already, get your own resources in order and make sure that if you have patients that are expressing things in a way that makes you concerned, that you do and something to do when they are you know, getting dysregulated, when they're regressing, when they're starting to get really perturbed by their own mental state. They need to know what to do at that point. And if you don't do safety planning, you, you could find yourself in some kind of legal quagmire later on if your patient should take their own life.
2: You
0: have a write-up that's actually quite interesting. Again, you know, discussing micronutrient therapy. That's in the title, but in um, Patients at Risk of suicide. But I think it, it, it's, it's more broad than just the intervention you're talking about. And I, I'll recommend it. And again, it'll be listed on our show notes. You sent us a pretty extensive bibliography. If there are any other resources, even things that you haven't authored that you think our, our readers should be aware of, if you know, we'll, we'll ping you later and, and we'll add those to the show notes as well. This has been extremely useful, um, Dr. Presky, and I, I just want to thank you for for taking your time with me and with our listeners today, I think um, folks listening will find it very, very valuable and 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 meaningful, both you know personally and um, you know those of us who are clinicians professionally. So thanks for your for your hard work in this in this arena.
1: Yeah, and I really thank you for the opportunity, and I hope people just get a little bit inspired to do a little more work on themselves and maybe on their own clinical path to just expand their own practice, let's say, and they could review some of the articles, some of the information that I've published, and maybe it will be of help. But thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been a real pleasure, and I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you kindly.
0: Absolutely. And that wraps up another amazing conversation with a great mind in functional medicine. I am so glad that you could join me. None of this would be possible through the years without our generous wonderful sponsors, including Integrative Therapeutics, Metagenics, and Biotics. These are companies that I trust and I use with my patients every single day. Visit them at integrativepro.com, bioticsresearch.com, and metagenics.com. Please tell them that I sent you and thank them for making New Frontiers in Functional Medicine possible. And one more thing, leave a review and a thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're hearing my voice. Um, These kind of comments will promote New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, getting the word on functional medicine out there to the greater community. And for that, I thank you. Until next time.